Welcome to Tell Me What to Say. This is Drew Kugler. Just a reminder, if you like this podcast, please give it a five-star rating on your podcast app. Those high ratings increase the visibility of this podcast to anyone who is searching for this kind of podcast. Any positive reviews that you are able to leave are greatly appreciated. If you pay attention to successful, impactful nonprofit organizations in Los Angeles, my guest Jesse Kornberg may likely ring a bell. Jesse is the chief executive officer of Betzedek Legal Services, and I will let her tell you about Betzedek's success in the community and throughout the nation. But as you'll also hear, she has developed a distinctive point of view about what it takes to lead a mission-driven organization, the kinds of conversations that allow for success there, and also the kinds of conversations that it takes to sustain her excellence and that of the people around her. And I, for one, was especially struck by her fresh and provocative view of career and personal development, especially as an emerging and successful female leader. As you listen, key in on her thoughts about the ideas of whether or not you are going to have a successful mentoring relationship, whether or not you can be effective at networking, and even some thoughts that she has about one's appearance when it comes to making an impression. Here is my conversation with Jesse Kornberg. So I actually um, met Jesse uh, in a very, very professional setting where I was doing some uh, assessment and coaching work in the law firm that she was part of. But we had a very brief uh, set of interactions because the work was designed, as you may remember, Jesse, it was going to be to enhance the culture and more specifically the partnership that was going on. We will leave that work far beyond, far back in the history uh, of where it lies, but there's a much better story about you that I wanted to start with. Um, after Jesse left that firm, as, as, as you'll know by looking at her biography, uh, she left that law firm and was uh, appointed to be the CEO of a very, very important nonprofit uh, here in Los Angeles called Betzedek. Uh, and as you can see in the show notes or look up on Betzedek, and I'll obviously let Jesse talk about it too, the very important work they do of providing legal services uh, and help to people who need it and can't afford it um, around LA and in all sorts of ways. So uh, a, a mutual friend of ours uh, was a previous CEO uh, and he invited me uh, to come to a, a banquet, you know, the fundraisers uh, for Betzedek. And I, at that point, hadn't pieced together that this was the Jesse who I had met at the law firm. But I'm sitting there as... It was a, a whole new Jesse. It's <laughs> a whole new, whole new person, completely fabricated and rebuilt. Uh, but the, the, the story goes, at least clearly in my mind, that... Frankly, it was an okay evening. I was saying that to Jesse because most of these things are just okay. 
Uh, and it was an okay evening until Jesse got up to speak. Uh, and Jesse, to use the popular term, uh, especially as someone who is as hypercritical of public speaking as, as I am, uh, Jesse crushed it, uh, as I have rarely, if ever, seen at one of these events. Uh, it was so crushed that they were very smart that as soon as Jesse stopped talking, they did an extra little fundraise. And I have never grabbed my phone so fast <laughs> as to add to the amount of money which I'd already given to get in the door and was happy to do that. Then said, I need to get to know her better and somehow uh, build a, a, a working good relationship there. So today um, is, is another extension of that. And I'm excited to be here and talk to you, not only to remind everybody what an incredible speech that was, um, but to, to have you, in essence, help the listeners. Uh, I'm very selfish about this. It's all about helping the listeners. Um, think about connecting with people, connecting with people in important settings. So thank you again. Well, thank you. That is very nice of you to remember it that way. <clears throat> and uh, was it? I love that bedside dinner. Yeah. I, I love the whole thing from start to finish and just feel privileged to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, and that came across in the speech. That's what was so <laughs> nice about it. Uh, you know, as you watch speeches, um, one of the distinguishing factors that night for Jesse and for other people that, I, that I'm either, you know, hired to help do that or just get to see do that, there is a certain, um, both, of course, things like authenticity and, 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 and genuineness, if I can make up a word, but there's also a humility. Uh, and um, Jesse, in a very uh, competitive world of nonprofits, manages both in this interesting way. But let's talk about how you, yeah. you got to that. Sure. Um, the question that I, that I promise everybody I'm going to ask first is to begin at the very beginning of occupational life. Uh, and that is, what's your first recollection of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Uh, I should say that I have been asked this question from time to time. Oh, and I have a joke now that I usually tell when someone says, what do you want to be when you grow up? I usually answer a philanthropist because <laughs> that sounds really fun. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be really <laughs> but fun. But I didn't know what a philanthropist was, I think, when I first conceived of a professional life. Right. <laughs> and um, I wanted to be a professional dancer. I wanted to be a ballerina mm -hmm. like so many um, girls my age at that time. And... Uh, I think that reflects both just some fun that I was having in the dance studio and um, how far away and mystical and impressive uh, the dancers that I got to see growing up because we went to the ballet mm -hmm. uh, appeared to me. Mm. And I did get to dance um, on a professional stage with professional dancers for a time and actually lived the dream ever so briefly um, and can say that it was a good dream. And mm. I was very lucky to get to do that. Mm. So then walk us forward a little bit. Eventually we'll end up sitting here. Um, w w the dream went on. And what happened that moved you off the stage 
and eventually into uh, the kind of work which I hope in the answer you'll describe a little bit about. Um, walk us down the path a little further. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> my dance career ended in injury, as most dancers do. Um, but I went to college. I went to Columbia undergrad. I was in New York um, when the World Trade Center was attacked in 2001 and uh, started looking at ways to contribute to the rebuilding effort. I mean, you know, just it was an all-consuming and overwhelming experience to be there at that time. Um, and I think most people I knew were looking for ways to feel engaged uh, in the aftermath. Mm. Um, so I worked for the Bloomberg administration on the rebuilding effort in lower Manhattan. And that was my first exposure to public service, really, of any kind. Um, but it was great work, and it exposed me to you know, a pretty essential truth about working in public interest, whether you're talking private or public sector, which is they usually can't afford the person who has experience doing the thing that they need someone to do. Um, and so they get at a discount someone with passion and energy, but really very few qualifications whatsoever. Mm. And so if you are, um, you know, a young person starting a career and you are weighing various options, you can trade money for opportunity and get to do really interesting work really early in life. Um, and so at a couple of junctures, I made what I always thought was a very selfish choice to do something that was just wildly interesting and exciting um, because I was going to work for a nonprofit or for government um, and, and not take a higher paying job in mm. a for-profit sector. And so I really... Um, people are always uh, telling me how much good I'm doing and how it's God's work. And I have to say, it's almost always been motivated by, well, it's just the most interesting opportunity mm -hmm. that's going to be offered to me. Um, mm -hmm. Why is it interesting? You know, I, I after working for uh, the rebuilding effort, my next position was working with homeless families, mostly homeless mothers with young kids. Um, and that was deeply compelling. <clears throat> what did you do with, with what was your charter, your yeah. remit with those families? Um, I worked with uh, the largest provider of transitional housing in New York City initially. And I did a number of things, one of which was looking at the data about who we were serving, where they were coming from, what was the cause of their homelessness, what helped them transition out of homelessness, and whether or not their homelessness would be repeated. Um, so, you know, there was some data and sort of social science there. But another aspect of my job was working on after-school and recreation programming for homeless youth. Mm. And my very limited experience um, there was that the homeless kids that I got to work with were sponges for attention and opportunity. And it was so easy to see how you could have a positive impact on someone in a very short period of time. And the satisfaction of seeing someone who has a problem and helping them resolve it is hard to match. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a high, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I was hooked, you yeah. know. And I've been really working in anti-poverty work ever since in one way or another. Got it. And then you went to law school? Is that... Yeah. Is get into the, because you did go well into the lawyer, lawyering world um, there, right? So out of the homeless work mm -hmm. and into the legal work. Yeah, I, right. I got to a place where the jobs that looked really interesting, uh, most of the people who had them had JDs. 
mm-hmm. and uh, had always thought that maybe, you know, to pursue a career in public service, that was probably mm-hmm. in the mix. I remember talking to a professor from college for advice. I was looking at, you could get a master's in public administration or in public policy, uh, or you could get a, a law degree. And I was trying to figure out which one, you know, really made more sense. And he said, well, do you want a job or do you want to be fascinated in school? And I said, I don't know, but I definitely need a job. And he said, then you have to go to law school. Right. <laughs> so that, that was, you know, really was a professional degree right. for me. Right. Um, and so came to UCLA for law school. I wanted to get back to California where I had um, been raised and, um, you know, kept uh, toes in the waters of that anti-poverty work here in Los Angeles. Housing is always front of mind um, for folks working on poverty issues. And so in law school, worked on our Skid Row housing clinic um, and got introduced to what poverty looks like in Los Angeles. Yeah. And, um, you know, was was always certain that I would be engaged in some kind of public service. Uh, I clerked for a federal judge after law school and uh, then traveled uh, for a while with some savings, which was a good decision. Um, And while I was traveling, uh, the United States economy collapsed. The global economy collapsed. It was 2008. Um, And the jobs that I anticipated applying for in government were frozen. Mm. And so, you know, sort of got a little bit more creative and reassessed what my options were. And a fledgling nonprofit that I had helped start when I was in law school called Ms. J.D., uh, which focuses on gender bias in the legal profession and advancing women in law school and in law, um, they were sort of ready to hire their first executive director. And again, I mean, I'll just go back to what I said initially. I had no business being the executive director of anything, um, but nobody else was going to take the job because they had no money in the bank right. <laughs> and, and no prospects, really. And so uh, that marriage of convenience was my first nonprofit management job. Got it. Got and it. Um, was at Ms. JD for, you know, three years and built it into a permanent lasting entity about which I care very much mm-hmm. um, and had a lot of great first experiences there thinking about how to run and grow uh, a cause-based organization. Mm-hmm. So when it came down to, since we started this whole thing off talking about communicating things that are important to you and I got to witness that one. Um, as you were doing the work, you said there was no money, right? It sounds like a pretty uh, straightforward, challenging situation. Do you recall at all um, some key moments, a key moment, a key conversation, whether it's a public, I define conversation in many ways, right? It really is the exchange of feeling and emotion and all the rest through uh, through through conversation, do you remember in the Ms. JD work, uh, the, the Ms. JD work to get underway? Do you remember some of these conversations? Yeah, I, I imagine you do. Yeah, I'm actually headed next week um, to a conference in Texas that I went to my first week on the job at Ms. JD eight years ago. Um, they hold the conference every couple of years, and. Uh, you know, imagine a ballroom full of 500 women. And only all of those women were either general counsels or managing partners 
of law firms or legal departments. Um, really high-powered, high-achieving folks. And here I was a couple of years out of school, uh, one week on the job, and just not a clue. <clears throat> and I, so I sort of sat quietly in the back. You know, I mean, I really was observing. Um, but I had two formative conversations um, or experiences at that conference that have shaped that shaped a lot for me at Ms. JD. Um, and the first was spending three or four days listening to folks describe what could easily be the opening paragraph of any employment discrimination lawsuit that I read in law school. Mm. You know, like just like the classic discrimination pattern and practice, disparate, it was all there. And none of them were suing ever. None of them were suing ever. And so, you know, it was important for me to see the problem, um, to understand the business dynamics that were keeping the status quo in place, um, but also to come in with a fresh perspective as a recent grad who only knew the law in the law books and not the law as it then got practiced in the real world. Um, and I think I was able to provide a little infusion of that fresh perspective mm -hmm. to that group and say, I don't understand, why isn't anybody suing? And I got a little education when people answered that. But I still, eight years later, I'll go to this conference next week and some woman at this conference will say, I remember eight years ago when you asked us why we never sue, right? right? Because you have to have those disruptive moments to make change. And it doesn't mean that I was right and they were wrong, but you need to give yourself opportunities where someone can bring new perspective and new input um, and potentially disruptive thought to whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. And so that was very helpful for me to see that dynamic and see that I could have a positive impact as a new though unexperienced voice. Yeah. But this is, if I may, this is one of those it's a cliche term, one of those teachable moments for anybody that's listening to this story. So I take the prerogative of interrupting it, right? Because what it sounds like, and correct me, what it sounds like is you made a very deliberate choice of choreography, back to dance, choreography there. You went from, uh, from walking in with the intention of listening first, of, as you said, I was gonna go in and gain understanding before you ever opened your mouth, right? And that positioned you to be the, the credible disruptor. So when anyone goes into an organization or to any sort of place that matters to them, it really, if I'm correct, it starts, because everybody says this, but your story's so key, it starts by, by, by settling in first, not blasting in. Right. So is that I, I certainly have taken that approach. I think I had to learn that the hard way um, a little bit. You know, my first couple professional experiences, I was maybe a little bit more hard charging mm -hmm. right out the gate. You feel like you have to prove yourself. Um, but if you don't understand who you're proving yourself to and what actually matters to them, it's really difficult to be successful. Mm -hmm. And I do think I, I learned that along the way. And now you know, try to be a better listener yeah. and try to understand who my audience is yeah. for a bit. Yeah, good. So there, there you were able to eight years ago um, 
create that moment not only for yourself but for the organization. Yeah. Um, I said there were two moments at that perhaps. conference, and I'll go back to the other, um, which I also carry with me. Um, you can't see me because this is an audio program, um, but I am five six, slender, you know, medium medium build, medium hair, medium everything, <laughs> you know. Um, I don't stand out in a crowd one way or the other. And uh, dressed for this conference, mostly in suits, maybe I would take my jacket off. Sometimes I had my hair up, sometimes I didn't. I don't wear a lot of makeup. And I had so, I was one of the only young women at the conference. And I had so many of the other conference attendees strike up conversation, get to know a little bit about me, and then tell me something I could do to make myself more professional in my appearance. Hmm. Um, if my hair was up, it could be down. If my hair was down, it could be up. If I was in flats, I could wear heels. If I was in heels, I could wear flats. And so the other thing that I took away was that um, too many people mistake judgment for mentorship. And none of that is all that helpful. Um, and that's really easy to say when you're on the receiving end. But I, I want to admit that over the years, as I have become a more senior person in the organizations that I work in, there are these moments where you become tempted to fall into that pattern. Um, I think it's more frequent that you feel that temptation with respect to young women. I think there is a gender difference there. And I just felt grateful so many times over the years that I had had that ridiculous experience um, at that conference so that I knew not to do it to anybody ever. Um, and I make it a point to remind myself to just judge the work product every single time. And I don't care what you wear to an interview. And I don't care what you wear to the office. I care how you serve the client. And if dress and appearance affects how you serve the client, I guess we could get there. But it's pretty hard to name the circumstances where that's really the case. Mm. And... Um, that has been one of the few things that I just kind of am proud of as a manager. Like that two, every two weeks we issue payroll and it's an opportunity to be radically equal. That like that all of the change we talk about seeing in the world, I get to ensure we're doing every two weeks when I make sure that we're hiring in a fair way, that we're giving opportunity in a fair way, and that we're rewarding and promoting in a fair way. Um, you know, the more senior you get, sometimes it feels like the more and more hemmed in you are by establishment and status quo mm -hmm. and remembering that that's one thing that I can do to really live a set of values that I care about. I took away from that conference and I continue to value very much. And it, it, it certainly affects what I'm assuming. I love this dichotomy between judgment and mentorship. And I remember that one a long time. Um, but let me ask you this. You, you are likely inundated 
um, uh, with women who see how you approach things, see how you, um, we'll say, present yourself. And I mean that in all, all the ways. And if they're doing their job of following their ambition with their initiative, they're going to find a way to ask you questions. Uh, and maybe you've gone through Ms. JD or onward even to this day. So what are you telling um, women? Because uh, it's, honestly, it's hard for me. I get a lot of questions, but it, it obviously comes across in a different way. Um, so I want to learn from you. Uh, and what are you telling either young women or women who are portraying their challenges because of their gender as to how to approach their professional world, their personal world, so that it's not judgy, but it is of mentoring value? Well, I first want to say I offer to give help to other women as frequently as I can. I'll do it on this podcast. My personal email is jessie.cornberg at gmail.com. And anyone who thinks they need help and thinks that I could help them should let me know. Um, but my experience, I talk to big crowds of law students and young professionals all the time. Um, the crowds are frequently majority female. And like the three guys in the audience will email me <coughs> and the women never do. So I actually don't get nearly as many questions as you might think um, from young women. I will say <clears throat> when I talk about asking for help, um, one of my first pieces of advice is to ask for help. You could try to learn how to do everything by yourself and only find out that you're doing it wrong because your failures are so obvious even you recognize them. Or you could look to people who have figured this stuff out already and try to learn from them. And I would suggest the latter approach is way easier. People like to say it's not what you know, it's who you know, like that's some horrible thing. Um, I think it's the best news ever because it's so much easier to meet a new person than to learn a new skill. Like it's so much easier, <laughs> you know. All you have to do is introduce yourself, right? Um, so I really encourage folks to get over the inertia of the awkward email and just, just click send. And the test um, that you, I apply for myself when I feel that moment of awkward inertia, um, because it is awkward to ask for help sometimes, I ask myself the following question, which is, if this person asked me for help, would I say yes? And if the answer is yes, I would help them, then like go ahead and click send. If the answer is no, I, I probably wouldn't help mm. them. Then you have like a whole other set of problems you need to deal with besides your awkward inertia about the email, right? I mean, this stuff pays itself forward. If you are not constantly making yourself available to champion other great people around you, you should not expect anybody to be doing the same for you. Um, and I got to say, doing that work of championing other people and connecting good people with one another and creating opportunity, it's great. It's rewarding in and of itself, but it will also bring rewards back to you. Mm -hmm. um, so that's usually my first piece of advice about how to think about this. We are not in competition with one another. We are each other's best chance for success.
Um, and then, you know, I don't give gender specific advice about how to engage in the workplace. I don't um, think that the way I approach my work is different because of my gender. And to the extent people perceive my work as different because of my gender, that's on them. Um, and that's my typical advice for women who have those concerns. Yeah. In the top of your story there of going to speak to these various groups, you pass out obviously very easily your, your, um, your email, but the men, the men write for insights and the women don't. What's your, your 25 cent pop psychology theory? I've never been a guy, so I don't know what that feels like. I know that when I ask for help, it totally feels awkward, and I have a lot of hesitation before I do it. And my only guess is that for some reason, women are feeling that the way I am to a greater extent that stops them from asking for help more than men. But I don't know because I've never been the dude. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk on, let's go to one other area, the present. Uh, and I have a couple questions about this place. Um, first, it, it, because it's important for the listener, it's important for the listener to know it. Um, let's talk about uh, Betzedek and what it does. And I'm sure you've somewhat got that part down. My so elevator pitch. Give the elevator pitch <laughs> as you would want people to hear, and then I have a. Uh, a couple important follow-ups, I hope, about yeah. that. Betsetic has been around uh, 45 years. Uh, we are community-based legal aid providers. What does that mean? It means that we give free legal services to people who can't afford them, and we specialize and focus on the legal needs that the community presents to us. So at any given time, at any given place, there are really urgent problems facing the most vulnerable among us. And we are constantly evolving to try to be the sword and the shield that those communities need in those moments. So 45 years ago, we were a storefront in the Fairfax district of Los Angeles. And it was primarily elderly Jewish women in that neighborhood who were in affordable housing and being evicted as that neighborhood gentrified and changed. So women in their 70s who had outlived their spouses or their other families, a lot of Holocaust survivors who were on fixed incomes and weren't sure where to turn. Those were the first cases in the door at Betsetic. Uh Over time, we have been the place where uh, gay men came in the city of West Hollywood when landlords were discriminating against people with HIV and AIDS. We were the place after the Northridge earthquake where homeowners came to try to understand how to litigate for fair compensation from insurance companies. We are the leading provider of wage theft assistance for low-wage workers in the garment industry, at the ports, in restaurant kitchens, and domestic service who aren't getting paid minimum wage. We're working with survivors of human trafficking to try to change the dynamics of abuse and protect them. We're working with elder abuse victims whose homes and livelihoods are being stolen from them. We are the leading provider of support and caregiving solutions for disabled adults. We have the first generation of disabled adults outliving their parents. 
It's a medical miracle, but our social system has not prepared for it. And we don't have caregiving solutions for those folks. We're mm. working with them to find solutions. We are right now responding to new needs in particularly vulnerable communities in L.A. We have the first transgender medical legal partnership in the country. We're helping transgender individuals with name and gender change petitions, helping them protect their freedom of movement with driver's licenses and passports that reflect their gender identity. We're working with undocumented parents who are right now terrified about the threat of deportation and what will happen to their U.S.-born children if they are removed. At any given time, there are new threats to safety and security for the most vulnerable Los Angelinos. Most of our clients, their entire household income is under $1,000 a month. Most of our clients are from another country or speaking another language. Most of our clients have some major barrier to access to the legal system. And at any given time, we are prioritizing the urgency of their various needs and trying to help them secure the basic necessities, housing, food, medical care, family care. Mm. It's great work. We've got 65 people here. We serve about 30,000 people a year. It's hard to imagine what I could possibly do that would be mean more than this. Yeah. So when you are faced with the reality, you know, along with how well you articulate the challenges, you're faced a reality of, uh, as I've heard someone else who raises money say, is there is money out there. Uh, the, the, the hard part is, is it's in people's pockets, <laughs> right? So how do you take this story, this this, you know, as you regale the number of challenges that are in Los Angeles, where in your conversations that you have, because they fall to you, do you then, and how do you then transition to helping people support you? Yeah. Fundraise. I do a lot of work um, raising revenue and support to maintain and grow our services. It's about 50% of my portfolio on any given day. I'm talking about money and connection. Um, and, you know, the basic thing is, do we have a priority in common with a potential donor? And you won't know that until you know the donor. So whether you're talking about a government agency that's going to contract with you, a philanthropic foundation that has a set of strategic priorities, or an individual whose heart sings to one beat or another, you have to understand who they are before you can identify ways in which you could work together. Um, and that, for me, is the key. When I'm asking for money, ultimately, I'm doing it with a lot of comfort and confidence that it's the right thing to be doing because I'm talking to someone about an opportunity to engage in something they care deeply about. I care deeply about it, too. That's why I'm doing my job. But I'm not going to pitch something to a donor that I don't feel they are going to be really excited about because of something I know and have learned about them. It's an investment in a relationship. If it's successful, you grow it over time. Hmm. So last question. You've been in the job now. We met. That was your first dinner, if I'm correct. Yes. That as the CEO, uh, we met soon after, and you were still certainly finding my sea legs, finding your sea legs, <laughs> figuring it out. But time has passed. It's been how long now? 
I'm in my third year. Third year. I want to put you on the spot and have you think back over those three years and in essence, reinforce the theme of this show. What's the conversation over the past three years that best exemplifies what you want to accomplish here? So I actually have twin masters in this role. I would say almost everyone else at Betsetic, both on the board and in the company, has a single mission. And that is the mission that serves our clients. But I think I, in addition to being guided by that mission, I'm very focused almost to an equal extent on the health and support and satisfaction of our staff. I am an employer in addition to a do-gooder. And so I want to say an answer that it really reflects that second priority mm. more than the first. Because the work is endlessly satisfying. And anytime I get to contribute to designing a new program or expanding our impact for client community, that's a conversation that's incredibly animating. Those are easy to talk about. Um, but in some ways, I come home at the end of the day happiest when a conversation goes like this. A member of the team comes in head down with a problem. They know it's a problem. They've identified a failure or a roadblock or a mistake or a challenge. And they've been butting their head against it. It's complex, it's difficult, and it's discouraging. And I get to be the person who says, okay, I know that this doesn't feel ideal. I know that this isn't what you wanted, but I think we can figure it out. Let's work together and muddle through. On my best days, I am helping people cope with complexity and cope with change. And when I'm able to do that and see then like their heads come up and the mood lighten and them see a way through, it's incredibly satisfying. Um, it feels like I'm doing well here um, because the team is fantastic. And when everything's going really well, all I need to do is get out of their way. When things are going differently than they had planned, that's when I can really step in and be helpful. Yeah. And it's that conversation that seems to mean as much, if not the most, um, to you. Well, we started today by talking about that speech you gave. And I want to thank you for uh, sharing that same persona, but in a very different way, uh, with the listener and with me. Um, it's what I hunched I'd be able to create in our little conversation here and why I was so overt in asking <laughs> you to do this. Uh, that night was, was something I will always remember. And in the spirit of what we're doing here in this program, this was uh, something special. So thank you, I thank you for taking the time and uh, we'll be right back. Mm -hmm.